Hello everybody, it's good to be back for another episode of My Normal. I'm very excited and glad to be back in front of this microphone. It's been some time and I'm looking forward to kicking this little podcast into gear and bringing you some exciting conversations. A couple little changes to the format include only doing face-to-face conversations because Zoom can go and eat a bat. Plus, I'm also doing uh, a bunch more with video production in future episodes, and we're going to get fancy. Today's guest, I'm very happy to share a conversation with Joel Ma, aka Joelistics. Over the past few months, Australian hip-hop royalty Joelistics has been trickling out his first taste of ambitious new production record, Joelistics Presents Film School. Upon my first listen, I am very into this for many reasons. This record takes you on a global journey of sounds and samples that's brilliantly collaborated with some of the finest musicians. His album is being launched this Saturday, the 6th of March at Howler in Melbourne, and it's sure to be a blast. I want to thank Joelistics for allowing me to use this track, which is Yokai, off the uh, opening track, actually, off the, um, off the new album, Film School. I did mention before that I'm looking at kicking this podcast in the gear, but I do need your help. If you could head over to my YouTube page, you type in My Normal Podcast and hit that subscribe button. Um, I need to get my subscribers up so I can get myself one of those fancy custom URLs so I don't have to type in one million letters to make people find me. Let's get into it. Joel Ma. AKA Joelistics, welcome to my normal. How are you, mate? I'm very good. How are you, Aiden? Very good, man. Uh, we are here at the lovely Box Hill Institute. Yes. Um, pretty sweet, pretty nice digs. Yeah. Uh, both of us are, you know, occasional employee here and getting yeah. through to these kids. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk to you today about um, where it all starts for you. So can you tell the audience what it is that's uh, sort of shaped your DNA as a musician? Um, well, I grew up in a very music friendly household, two households. My parents split up when I was two and um, my dad is an architect and my mum is a teacher and my dad is a huge jazz and blues and folk music fan. So he had a lot of Bob Dylan records. He had a lot of records when I was growing up. Uh, I would say his collection revolved around jazz, which included like Miles Davis, Charlie Mingus, John Coltrane, even Duke Ellington and some big band stuff. Yeah. And Bob Dylan. Yeah. That was, is, you know, not country and Western. It was jazz and Dylan. Yeah. And he was, he had his thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, my mom's tastes like lent more towards uh, Al Green and, and Peebles and, uh, yep. soul music, but also like the Neville brothers and the meters, like really some really funky stuff. But Sick. yeah, she had, yeah. she has really good taste. Um, they yeah. both do in fact. And, um, and my sister, I think my parents pegged my sister as being the musician because they gave her piano lessons and she yeah. had a piano when we were growing up. Um, and we grew up in two households, mom and dad's yeah. household. Um, we'd swap between them two weeks in each house. Um, but it was funny because I would go in and just, like even at like five and seven would go in and bang on the piano and, and try and uh, play it, but not play it properly. Cause I didn't want to learn and get lessons. I wanted to just like press the sustain pedal and hit notes and let yeah. it ring out. And, um, I think 
the kind of households that, that, that mum and dad sort of ran were very much like music was playing on Sunday mornings and it was playing at dinner time and it was playing when they were cooking and it was playing, you know, it was, it was a big part of my life's ambient sounds. Yeah. And so, it, you know, I remember um, sitting in front of the record player at dad's place and putting on the white album before I was 10 and putting on and loving the song piggies. Cause it had the sounds of pigs in it. And yeah. like, then loving the sound of Rocky Raccoon because it was sort of weird and it made me feel like kind of like it was a sad story, but it was also an uplifting story. You know, yeah. all those early formative exp- emotions of discovering what music can be, I, I can really recall some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in high school I discovered weed and acid and yeah. suddenly Dad's record collection was this <laughs> portal to everything that I – wanted to be a part of yeah it was you know suddenly his bitches brew by miles davis or john coltrane uh john mclaughlin's um shakti record or um the mahavishnu orchestra yeah was blowing my mind and this is all not my taste this is just what i had access to yeah um but also i started playing drums in high school and year seven and um my first record that i bought was lenny kravitz's let love rule yeah. Um, what was the first piece of music you were gifted? Uh, the first piece of music I was gifted was um, uh, the album's called um, Whispering Jack, John yep. Farnham. You're the voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the voice. Yeah. It was huge. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I, I was born in 1977. I'm much older than I look. Yeah. So that John, the John Farnham, that record hit when I was in year five or year six in yep. primary school. And I remember my friend John Luke Mayo got it on a tape and he played it to me and I, I just was like m- so into it. Yeah. And then I can't remember. I think I asked for my dad to buy it for me. Anyway, he bought it. I got it yeah. as a gift and he, he actually took me to the concert as well at the entertainment center like yeah. some years later. Um, Can you remember sort of what aesthetic to John Farnham that was attractive to you? Yes, I can distinctly yeah. remember really loving the sound of the tape that goes doo, 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 before the first song played yeah. and being as into that sound as I was the yeah. whole record. But I also loved the the epicness of, of, the, of that yeah. record. And listening back to it as an adult, I it's full of synthesizers and, yeah. qui- and some pretty high-level electroacoustic production yeah. for the 80s, you know, which is that sort of Phil Collins era, you know, the, everyone's using sort of, I don't know, DX7s and whatever, yeah. you know, big patches that feel quite quite sort of epic and reverb drenched. And, and like I rate that record still. Yeah. I'm not embarrassed by the fact that that is such a formative record Yeah, because I've listened back to it and gone, the production is fucking sick. Yeah. I feel it's uh, super... Um, well, even probably just, I've just had this realisation now that like my first um, gifted album was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's like <laughs> subliminally, subliminally, whatever the word is, uh, like shapes your musical taste forever. Yeah. Like you've clearly uh, it, shaped like your interest in synthesizers and all that sort of stuff, which probably birthed from that. But I mean, from that, like I've been a rock and roll guy uh, forever uh, after that was Californication. Oh, yeah. Um, Great. Chili Peppers. So I feel like, I mean, you know, like I'm hopefully starting a family soon. I reckon I'm going to really overanalyze what the first yeah. piece of music that will be my spawns like. 
what's the possession, formative musical possession? I think that's really interesting. Um, I have a daughter, Lua, and she is obsessed with dub music. I don't know what that <laughs> says about about what's going to happen in the future, but she like I mean. I bought a box set of this um, a, an artist named Paul who does he's from he's German and he does sort of like deep sub bass dub with like Juno patches and crackles for the rhythm parts and um, she loves that that record yeah and she loves old Augustus Pablo and King Tubby and stuff but traveling How old back is she? she's now nine months as of last Friday <laughs> nine months old so she's been out. Longer than she's been in by three days. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so good. And yeah. already like like supreme music taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm I am we she's growing up in a household full of music. Yeah. And and I think it's it's probably even it's a language that my parents passed on to me. It's a language that my partner's parents passed on to her. It's just it's the glue, you know, we we it's the language that me and my partner speak together as yeah. and and also it's funny like um, how much um, when Tanya was pregnant and when Lua was young, like music has been something that's sort of helped us survive yeah. having a child during COVID times and yeah. helped us survive. Lua's quite a complex child. She's got yeah. some some extra needs. Yeah. And so we've, you know, some of that stuff was really hard to navigate when yeah. you couldn't access family last year. And so yeah. music became this medicine for us yeah. it really helped us to um, come to terms with lots of stuff yeah. and, and also you know sleeplessness and yeah. what the fuck are we doing and what happened to you know our youth and all those questions yeah. that arise naturally yeah it somehow yeah music's been a big part of yeah and it's I guess it's also probably a blessing um, through COVID um, and timing having a child and getting that time to like for a a man to almost have that maternally maternal leave oh, or paternal leave stuff like it was brilliant actually it uh, was a real blessing had the opportunity to to uh to be around it you know like as the typical touring musician or the or the working musician like having a baby like there's no there's no paternal leave there's two weeks so the but centrelink like will a, pay you for two weeks to take right. time off from your your job yeah, right. But that's n- that is not enough. That <laughs> two is weeks. not yeah. what you, you I mean, two that, weeks to get him into King Tubby. Yeah. <laughs> two weeks <laughs> and also like I mean, look, it is that first initial my experience of that first bubble of when Lua came out for a month, it's 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 like being high. Like I, I'm not kidding. Yeah. It's we were in this bubble of just gooey warm love yeah. and you're getting to know and Lua is so fragile and so everything was so surreal because of how much you're just focusing on on this new human being and they're you know they're looking at the world like whoa and you're looking at them like whoa and yeah it's two weeks is not enough time to to absorb like because you you know i mean i can still literally just spend hours just watching my daughter just discover a ball yeah (laughs) it's it's the best thing in the world yeah the brand new high yeah man yeah, um, what a trip. Yeah, it is a trip. Um, the, but so for me, when when for mum and dad and the, and the whole sort of growing up with music, I give them props, but I have to really give props to my sister. So yeah. I have an older sister who's five years older than me, and she um, introduced me to, you know, Prince and Madonna yeah. and um, De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest and yeah. Gil Scott Heron and, like, the cool stuff, you know, yeah. like – 
she she took mum and dad's influences as well, but yeah. she also kind of found that she loved that sort of mid-70s funk and, and Sly and the Family Stone and all this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember sort of stealing her her tapes and records and and I also remember being in Year 7 and, and other kids being like, oh, man, do you like Metallica? And I'd be like, no, but I love Like a Prayer, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I have always had a deep love of pop music. Yeah. Um, and when, yeah, I think when my peers were all getting into sort of really heavy shit, I was getting into more and more um, synthy pop music from the 80s. Yeah. Which I still love. I yeah. still love that shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely took me a while to appreciate um, the the pop stuff. I definitely um, remember it, but I guess I sort of took me getting to like my 20s and actually studying music to go back and appreciate how good like the pop stuff was in the 90s mm. and even like the hip-hop and the R&B stuff. Enjoying the podcast? How about starting your own? My Normal Podcasts is now searching to develop new and emerging podcasts. From creating your very own jingles to sourcing hosts and guests for your corporate brand, please visit www.mynormalpodcasts.com for more information on how to add personality to your project. Hip hop for me, because there was playing. I used to drums was my first instrument, yep. and I, you know, was in school bands playing like Joe Cocker and yep. the Beatles and Rolling Stones covers. But then also starting bands and the bands being influenced by like Faith No More and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, yep. and even then, even heavier stuff like Dead Kennedys and yep. you know, a bit of quite a bit of punk stuff. Um, but for me, the the whole kind of hip hop influence felt like when it, it was my nirvana or something it was my yeah. rebellion like it was my play loud and jump around and go crazy too yeah. and you know ice cube um the predator is still to me one of the heaviest records of all time like yeah. not just sonically but just the attitude and that what runs through that record and what it implied about the world being um, I guess a, a much more complicated, layered, nuanced, and deeply um, yep. unjust place. It spoke to that something social that yeah. I didn't fully understand, but I kind of knew I wanted to understand. And yeah, um, yeah, and I still rate that as a just such a heavy, awesome record. Yeah, um, sick. Yeah, definitely not to get into um, sort of your DNA of hip hop and what sort of shaped your sound and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, you as a 15-year-old, what was your typical Saturday? Like what were you getting up to in your childhood on a, on a Saturday afternoon? On a Saturday afternoon? Saturday Sat night? Saturday. Like if you had the whole Saturday to just do your ideal tasks, what were you what were you? Oh, okay. You so um, the ideal tasks at home would include drumming, like yep. practicing drums. Um, I got gifted a drum kit from one of my sister's boyfriends, uh, Stuart... What's his name? I can't remember his second name. Uh, lovely dude. Uh, he actually taught, gave me lessons as well. And, um, you know, I would, I would practice a lot. Um, what else would I do? Swimming at um, Dawn Fraser Pool because I grew up in Sydney. So yep. uh, then a, a really a big part of my sort of 14 to pretty much like early 20s was smoking weed. Yeah. I, I 100% – Used to smoke a fucking lot of yeah. weed as a kid. My mum sold weed yeah. when I was growing up, so I had access to a lot of it. 
Perfect. Um, I uh, used to sell it at high school. Yeah. Uh, I took great pride in building bongs yeah. and going and buying. It was just when weed shops had started, yeah. you know, but they were, like tobacconists were starting yeah. to sell pipes. What was your go-to uh, DIY technique? Uh, well, my favorite one was a tennis ball contain, uh, silver yeah. container, <laughs> which I would sink a, a pipe into. Yeah. But obviously like Orchie bottles or even like yeah. an, uh, a um, apple or c- carrot bomb yeah. uh, had been used in the past. But this tennis ball one, because it sort of covers your whole mouth and it was a bit like, I don't know, it was like just quite intense and you could yeah. really get a drawer out of it. Yeah. Um, and bu- bucket bongs, like, you know, it was a very big, I, I can't. And I'm not promoting drugs or saying, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that they're also they're bad. I just this is what how I grew up. This yeah. is what I what I engaged in. Yeah. And it was, you know, music, weed, acid. Um, yeah. Those were the three things that I did. Did you smoke lot. cigarettes? No, not no. I I started smoking when I was in my early twenties, and I gave up. Bingo. Anyone who votes against fucking legalized marijuana. Is that a that's an the common argument? Well, probably, I don't know. I think cigarettes kill more people than marijuana do. Yeah, that's, that's oh, they definitely do. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, ciggies are yeah, they're little death sticks. And and it's funny when we were um, when we were aiming to get pre- pregnant or, yeah. or or conceive, um, my partner and I, I went to see a Chinese doctor, and the Chinese doctor said, um, "You, the first thing you should do is stop smoking cigarettes. That is the yep. worst thing you can do for, you know, to get healthy yep. baby making." juices flowing yeah um and yeah i i don't really miss cigarettes um i think ciggies were just a big part of you know the music lifestyle i think yeah there's it when you're on tour when i was touring a lot with tzu i think ciggies were just something to do while you waited for the next thing to happen something to do with your hands something to make yourself look busy 100 percent. yeah 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 um but not so much and i don't smoke weed anymore by the way i'm not you know i'm not like fuck it weed man it's more like that was my teen years and it was so i did it so much and yeah, it ha- and it is intricately linked with my music tastes and my, uh, you know, with lots of ideas of art and whatnot. But that I can't do that stuff now. Yeah. That stuff is back then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my ideal Saturday was probably getting stoned and yeah. putting on records and yeah. you know, practicing drums. Was it becoming a family man as the main reason or reason code as to stop smoking weed? Uh, yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but also, I just I, I found my weed hangovers were just as bad as my drinking hangovers. And, and yeah. I don't, I, I don't have much free time anymore. Yeah. And so the time that I do have that's free, I want to use to make really good music or yeah. have really good present conversations with friends and be around, you know, be yeah. there somewhere, wherever that is. And just weed just is a bit more like when you have more time on your hands. Yeah. I don't have the time. At yeah. The moment. <laughs> well, I feel like if you get if you get high enough, you can almost like engage or exercise that part in your brain. Yeah. Uh, especially when songwriting. Yep. Um, and same with acid. I think yeah, you know. I absolutely. mean, I, I think you don't need to do it to tap it to 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 get on that vibe and and remind yourself of what it is and and go to that place. Whatever it was that you liked or found really expansive about those things, you can find that and yeah. Unlock it. Yeah, absolutely. Just at least to yeah, unlock that yeah part of your brain where you just go, yeah, I I am just a minuscule piece of DNA on this global scale. Yeah. It's just it's no handy. word. It's, it's handy, like it's, it's to look at yourself with the perspective of your 
insignificance but the utter significance of yep. that insignificance and then kind of expand that out and go, oh, cool, you know, the experience is everything and I can, I can, I, I want to, I want to treasure this. Yeah. And, and I do think, you know, I really do think that those feelings come when you're a teenager and when you do mix it, you know, responsible amount of psychedelics and, and good music. I think those, that yep. some doors do unlock and you do start to kind of, I kind of open up and that is a fucking, that was a hugely iconic and very important part of my yeah. musical growth. Um, and I think, you know, it informed a lot of, um, the connections that I made in my early twenties that sort of led to bands and led yep. to scenes and whatnot. Um, because I think, you know, it, it's really that you can't, I, I, I really, even with the students at Box Hill, when we talk and I, I, I kind of can't impress upon them enough how different it was trying to access music and what music yeah, meant 100%. for your friendships when you were in the, before the internet, before yep. you had access to everything you had to find ways to find the music you liked and yep. what music you liked defined who you were to everyone, you know, yep. socially, fashion, you know, what subculture you decided to kind yep. of. What logo you'd drawn on your school bag. hundred yeah. percent. And yeah. And, and, and also those lyrics that you were listening to was the armor you wore out at your high school, like what yep. who you were. And, and I think that, there's a real diffu diffusion of that with the ability to, you know, I think my little brother once went, oh, he's like, oh, do you like Brazilian psych music? You know, he's like talking about um, <laughs> some some stuff from the 70s, some some really cool shit. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, man. I, I, you know, and I think I named, um, uh, what's that? Um, it's, I can't think of the name of the band. Um, Os Mutantes. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I really like Os Mutantes. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more than that. He's like, I downloaded all of it. And I went, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I went. On a, on a thread and I and I got like 15 gig of psychedelic Brazilian music. It covers everything from... Wow. Yeah, from yeah. 1960 <laughs> up to today. And I'm like, that's mind-blowing yeah. that you just got, you know, like I remember yeah. going to record stores and or CD shops and having to like sit through a fucking conversation with the dude behind the counter who's telling me about, you know, the connection between Mr. Bungle and Faith No More and how, yeah. why I should listen to Mr. Bungle and me going, okay, I guess I'll buy the CD and then going home and it being awesome yep. or vice versa, getting, you know, Trout Mask Replica by yeah. Captain Beefheart and taking it home and being told it's the best thing ever and going, this fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, you know, you had to do your research and commit to some things. Yeah. <laughs> what were... Um what were some of the albums that you purchased that you can remember that you heard and then yeah. you have taken for yourself? As in, as in, like that's a that is the now. way the way they the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they put their songs together, the production. Oh, that's good. Uh, I would say um, that mm, maybe me. Mm, okay, definitely check your head. Yep. Uh, by the Beastie Boys. Yep. That was uh, a bit of a lifestyle manual for yep. me. I, I, I maybe even ill communication even more. So mm -hmm. at that point, the Beastie Boys were doing. They had their funk band. They had their punk band. They had the hip hop thing. They had a, a magazine called Grand Royal. They had so much output. They were interviewing Lee Scratch Perry in their magazine, and they were also, you know, sampling. I don't know, Jimmy Smith. Like just this sort of just this kind of overview of all the things that I liked yeah. and they did it in a way and they, it was like skate culture, but it was also 
stoner culture. They were yep. just super cool. They were just, at one point I do remember thinking the Beastie Boys were the three coolest dudes on the planet. And I was yep. like, that is me. That's what I want to yep. be. Also like the birth of Rick Rubin and. Yeah. Um, but that's pre, that's, that, I wasn't into the Beastie Boys. I didn't listen to it, to License to Ill when it came out. Yeah. That's a little bit before my time. I sort of came onto hip hop about five years after that. Um, but I jumped on, like I knew Tribe Called Quest and then listened to, um, uh, there's Q-tips on a track on ill communication. And I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. These guys are cool. And then sort of, you know, found, you know, I mean, it was all sort of happening at the same time. But yeah, th- that would be a band that, or a group and an album that, that totally defined me. The, another one, I, I guess. Um, was it lyrically or musically for them? Uh, musically I yep. I've never really thought that they were the greatest lyricists but their vibe is yep. like brilliant like yeah I think they do what they do really well yep. but I, you know lyrically um, more maybe I mean the disposable heroes of hypocrisy which became Spearhead yep I feel a bit embarrassed to say this, but I really loved that record yep. this first Spearhead record and the disposable heroes record that's lyrically more maybe in my DNA as like that I held that up as like great lyrics. Yep. Especially, you know, like um, the Disposable Heroes record a, a lot. Um, what else? I mean, I would say um, um, Bringing It All Back Home by Bob, Bob Dylan. By the time I finally realized that how brilliant Bob Dylan was, that was the record that did it for me. Yep. Um, and there's a song called um, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. Uh, it's all right, my only bleeding. That song is still lyrically maybe one of the greatest pieces of of yep. lyricism I've ever ever encountered. Um, it's a perfect song. It's yep. it's it's just it's mental how good yep. the lyrics are in that, and especially because his Bob Dylan's flow sounds like a rap to me. Yep. Like he's crossing bars, he's got internal rhymes, he's but there's a melody, but the melody's very underplayed and. Yeah, his tone is so full of blues and pain, but also kind of snarling cynicism. And um, he's for someone who isn't into Bob Dylan, he's so easily dismissed. I think. By yeah, people, people are just like you know, and this similar sort of thing. Like yeah, people will, uh, um, you know, hear like what's an example like. Camp Cope or someone yeah. for the first time and they'd be like, wow, what is this? And you're just like, oh man, it just means you haven't heard everything that's come before this stuff that like, yeah. it's such a, um, a it's poetic, you know, like, like, uh, you know, watch Forrest Gump and tell me you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, I, I feel like there's a, there's always, you know, with that, with an artist like that, there's gotta be the gateway song, the song that, cause Dylan for me, Obviously, you know, growing up with my dad's love of Dylan, I heard a lot, like the whole <laughs> the whole discography. He's even got the basement tapes. Um, and once you find, you know, because there's such a huge disco- like back catalogue, once the song, you find the right song and it lets you in, it's almost then you get to, uh, you get let into all of the other rooms. Yeah. And, you know, like I know for me the song was It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, but there's, or it could have easily have been Hurricane, which is another one where yep. it feels like a rap and it feels like... Yeah you know, it's just, it's punk as fuck. Like it's, yeah. it's such a great energy. Um, and then you can go back to the folk stuff and really appreciate, oh, cool, yeah, like uh, yeah. the ballad of Hattie Carroll or the 
um, Ballad of a Thin Man or, or, you know, all this stuff. It's even blowing in the wind and all the big hits. He's yep. like, oh man, they're genius. Like, um, but I totally, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, I don't mind. I, I don't think it's a, um, a, an unusual position to not like Dylan because, you know, um, it's so of a time. And so um, I guess it's like slow as well in its own way. Slow music doesn't have much place in the 21st century as much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Music that requires hard work. Yeah, that requires you to meet someone halfway. That's doesn't really. Yeah, like I think of doesn't a modern comparison would be doesn't hit the streaming numbers. Yeah, I mean it's not a modern comparison, but like Vance Joy, but he's still extremely upbeat. But I'm just trying to think of people who like. It's really. I mean, it's also really like think of uh, think of bands, and I mean, I feel like the the industry doesn't allow for it doesn't have a great place for people for artists that require the listener to, to 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 go through some level of discomfort with yeah it's like it's got to be all there straight away and here's the melody and yeah. here's the and it and i you know what i think it is as well as it's it's um we've maybe passed the era where sort of ugliness is allowed to be in music as much in the popular mainstream as it as it once was yeah. um now music is very pretty and yeah it's got to be it's got to have a accessible certain accessible and like no punches are being pulled. Yeah. Well, and it's, there are punches being pulled, but like not by the majority. Yeah, not by the majority. Not yeah, in a not, big pop sense. Yeah, not to get on. There's no punches being pulled by Triple J or anything these days. I, d- I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, look, I'm also, I'm 44. I don't think I'm the audience to be able no. to find that stuff, yeah. access it or know what's going on to the level that a 25-year-old should or is. But I, I definitely do keep my ears open and I do feel like it's just it's something to do with access when you've got access to everything nothing is that precious anymore yep and or it's not that yeah it just is it's all available yep um is there a particular um producer that comes to mind when you first started like putting you know multiple artists together and then finding the common thread that it was one producer who had their hand across all of them um, yes, I can t- point to a few producers that I looked to and was really excited by the idea of fusing styles, genres and, and bringing different artists together. One of the, one recent one or not, maybe not so recent anymore, but the, the Danger Mouse and Gorillaz and Damon Albans, that record Demon Days, I thought was a, a really great, um, m- melding of hip-hop influences and singers and acoustic instrumentation and sort of rock culture and bringing those things together and danger mouse himself as a producer yeah did the black uh, the gray album which was like sampling the beatles and jay-z yeah. jay-z's black record black album uh which i thought was brilliant um on a sort of um on a being inspired by producers level like george martin and his work with the beatles I was obsessed with before I knew what it, what the yep. job even was. Um, yep. I still am deeply obsessed with the production of the Beatles and, and yep. particularly that sort of 60s, mid, late 60s, early 70s psychedelic period. Yep. Um, and I think um, someone who took that and sort of ran with it into – into the modern era is a, a producer named John Bryan mm-hmm. um, who's produced Fiona Apple um, but he also produced Kanye's second rec- record and yep. 
Um, he's done a lot of solo stuff and he, he soundtracked, um, Jesus, which, which films does he sound? He's soundtracked a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films. So Punch Drunk Love and, um, yeah, some, some, some great sort of orchestral, but folky, but with beats. Yeah. Really great elements. Um, when I was, um, when I sort of, I guess, took off the performer hat more from TZU and Joelistics and put on more of a producer hat. Um, maybe I was looking, um, why was I looking at as, as inspiring? I mean, Rick Rubin always. Um, and then maybe Absolutely. Nigel Godrick as, mm-hmm. as a godlike producer. I think what he does with Radiohead, but he also has done with Beck and being able to sort of embed himself in the palette of sounds and really, you know, uh, find the emotional truth of the, the music that he's working with yep. with a band. I think is really impressive. Yep. What? Um, when did you sort of start performing? Um, and what? What was like your sort of, of goals when you first started performing? Do you mean like as an adult or as a kid? Uh, no, as in like the first time you like jumped on a stage and was like, people, I'm going to show people what I'm working on. Right. Um, so I was in a band in high school, uh, called the Bexters. Yep. Um, named after, um, Beck, um, what was it? Beck Schofield, who was in year, a couple of years above us. Yeah. And, um, we all had a massive crush on her. And, yep. um, uh, I played drums. Yep. And, uh, we did a battle of the bands, mm-hmm. um, at Balmain Town Hall in yep. like, I don't know, whatever, 91 or something like that. Yeah, your songs? Uh, no, or like Jimi Hendrix covers, I think. Yeah, and um, and that was cool. Like that was my first band. I was in, you know, I was, I was really young and and loved the being in a bandness. Like yep. just you've got a little tribe, you got a little gang. But I got kicked out of that band. Oh, I know, God. and it was <laughs> it was tough. It was tough yeah. at the time. It was a real like um, learning life lesson. It was like, oh wow, yeah. if you get kicked out of your group like yeah. that's you know that's a sort of social death of sorts yeah um but to i started the, another band to the best of your understanding what was the reason code for getting kicked out well i mean it was a we grew apart <laughs> the other three guys started playing water polo and rugby union yeah and i started to get more into prince and madonna and it yeah. was a, just a, de- a different r- life path yeah and not to put a too fine a point on it but also Balmain where I grew up was a very rich suburb these three guys were very fucking sort of of a particular yeah socially more they were from rich families yeah and my family was we were my mum sold weed I yeah. mean we were we were like <laughs> I was a bad influence their parents thought I was a bad influence yeah. on them really they you know one of them ended up becoming a merchant banker or something he's a bit of a douche you know I mean like whatever yeah. that's fine I'm have yeah I don't have any problems with it. No. <laughs> but you know, like we just didn't, we, our lives went like that. But what was cool was that I started, an, I started another band yep. called um, the Mechanical Bum Cheeks, which was much more <laughs> of a punk kind of reggae band. Yep. And then we had the next year's Battle of the Band and yep. both bands were in it. So uh, my old band yep. and my new band and the new band won yeah. and beat the old band. And yep. it was a fuck water polo. Yeah, fuck, <laughs> fuck you, football players. It yeah. was a very gratifying moment. Um, yeah. And I guess that the performing side of things, like that was, you know, playing drums and, and, and 
playing for your friends and we played it like, you know, I think Blue Light Disco or something. Um, but then the second, the second band, the Mechanical Bum Cheeks, actually went on to play at pubs. Underage, yep. we were underage. We were, I was at this point year nine, year ten, um, and I liked the. Uh, for me, music culture has always been uh, a place where misfits are allowed to gather and connect. And yep. you don't have to play water polo or come from a good family yep. or know what you're going to do with your life. It was a place where, you know, um, where you could come from. Uh, various backgrounds, racial background, yeah. you know, back, ethnic backgrounds, and look different, look story. weird. And you could fit in and yep. you or fit in by not fitting in, you know, yep. or, or the, at the time when I, the music culture I grew up was also equally like it was gender equal. There was a lot yep. of like, I remember a band called Nidacris. It was all these girls who played um, Guns N' Roses covers and they, they were awesome. Like we, we all hung out and talked music and it yep. was, to me, it was a really evolved subculture. Yep. the music scene, not without its problems, but f- my experience was like, yep. I found my tribe. And so the performing of it was always about playing for those friends and, and other people. And I don't think I was ever, I don't think I've ever been sort of a super nervous performer. I've actually always enjoyed it, but I don't think I'm a particularly extroverted person either. So it's, yep. it's like, um, and my relationship with performing is like, you know, at some point it just clicked over into it just feels kind of natural and I can yeah. I can roll with this. Um, you know, I never put on a, a personality to get on stage, which yeah. I know some people do for that, for to get out of their, their, their everyday. Yeah. Um, but I also never felt, you know, like um, sh- too shy on stage yeah. or something. So. Um, you know, and obviously once you're moving from playing drums to being, to rapping is a big jump in terms of, um, what you're asking of yourself or of what you're giving to an audience. Um, so that, that was a big thing. Um, but, um, probably the early days of getting into rapping and being in TZU, I mean, myself and the other guy who I rapped with Pip, we, we used to do mental shit. Like we... After pulling an all-nighter on a lot of acid again, yeah, we went to Centrelink when when Centrelink was the DSS, the Department of Social yeah. Security, and we at like nine in the morning on a on like a Monday morning or it's Friday morning, I don't know what it was, but we jumped up on the desks yeah. at nine in the morning and freestyled <laughs> to the to to the people waiting to hand in their form, yeah, and the poor people who were working at the de- like what a horrible thing for us to do yeah. for a start. But we were like, this is a way that we pulled, you know, tear down yeah. our, our inhibitions. We're selling and- t-shirts at the car park. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were just loose as goose. Like yeah. we were just like, yeah, let's just wrap it. You know, and, and yeah. we would do it on trams and trains and we busked a lot and all of this sort of stuff. And, and I think about now, it was, it was atrocious music, but it yeah. was, it was the art of like trying to like strip back and just, 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 just deliver and have fun yeah. and, you know, and once you've done stuff like that, you can kind of get on a stage yeah. and rock it like it's like. What it's are okay. some of your um, like fondest memories of TZU? Uh, I I loved I loved the um, early days. I really loved the sort of formative yep. era of TZU when Australian hip hop hadn't really tipped over into a. It didn't have a big audience. It was a very tight community. Again, yep. it was a really like who was kind of, who was sort of sharing. 
the stages with you at that point? Oh man, the hoods. Actually, yeah. the hilltop hoods. We it, there was a point in time where it felt like we would see the hilltop hoods and downside on all of yep. the festival bills, and we'd get booked, and one of those two groups would get booked, and we'd see them quite a bit. Um, yeah. And it was cool because, you know, there was an underground hip-hop scene which was a bit more tough than we were. So that yep. was like, you know, a lot of Melbourne groups actually and Melbourne rappers that were that were sort of from that, maybe from the graph um, subculture more. Yep. But just like, you know, gutter, gangster, sort of yep. Melbourne gangster. And then there was the more musical, live, funky stuff. That's where we sort of yep. – that's the territory we were in. And, and TZU was a, like a, a band, wasn't it? Like Eventually. Yep. Actually, originally it was four of us. It was like two rappers, a producer who was um, playing uh, an SP-808, like a Roland yep. sampler live on stage and a turntablist. Yep. Um, so th- that was the original setup for like – I think we played like that for about five or six years. Yep. And then – we brought on a keyboard player and then we brought on a band and yep. it sort of grew and grew. And so what originally had been like four friends driving around really and touring yep. in hire cars were, became, you know, uh, I think upwards of at one point, like, I don't know, 16 or 17 yep. people, something like that for a yep. big crew. Um, and yeah, I mean like the, um, the, the sort of my, my maybe my warmest fondest memories of those sort of early days when hip hop was just sort of I don't know was sort of like breaking in Australia in a significant kind of way where you could survive and do big gigs and we were at that forefront and we were touring and we were you know writing lots of music and freestyling a lot and yep. you know you'd end up after a gig at some party in the back streets of Launceston and, and I loved that stuff that adventure yep. was brilliant. Um, you know, um, but like every band, it's, it's, you know, once you've sort of become a bit more professional and everything kind of yep. lifts its game, it sort of, it becomes a different thing. Was everything achieved that you set out to with TZU? Nah, no, no way. I mean, I think, Where, I think. What, what was sort of the headline achievements? Oh, the headline achievements? Um we played a lot of big festivals to big crowds. So we did the yep. big day out, I think, three times, like the whole tour. Yep. Um, the Falls Festival, we played at um, the main stage at like, I want to say like either the – we did one year, which I think was the 12 o'clock turnover, like the countdown, and then we did one year either side of that, like 1 a.m. and then like 11 – like good slots yeah, where so people are loose and everything's crazy yep. and you you know, having a big good time. Um and, you know, w- one of the things that I really, really regret is that TZ, you didn't get to, we didn't get to travel overseas and play. Yeah. And we had a quite a extensive sort of um, tour of Europe booked for the Computer Love Tour, but Pip got quite sick before we went on that, t- the tour, the national tour. And yep. then we couldn't do the international side of it. And then that's sort of when everything started. To, we took a big break after that. So. Yeah. That would be one of my things. I was like, oh, damn, I wish we'd gotten to go overseas a yep. bit more. Um, as far as like creatively, I feel we said a lot, but I there's a few things, there's a few, you know, I mean, you look back, I look back and there's there's a, a feeling of like there were some elements of TZU that I wished we'd taken more care with yep. and some elements that I wished we'd not worried about. And I think it was what happened was we got – quite a bit of triple J attention yep. and that started to influence a lot of the material we wrote for yep. better or worse. And it kind of kept us going, 
but there's a point where a lot of bands just tip over and you stop, you know, Triple J, you're not the hot act. And I wish we'd just abandoned the whole mindset at that that point and said, okay, cool, that's yep. not our thing anymore, let's do this, um, and gone into a more eccentric path. But yep. we sort of tried to keep one foot in each camp yep. a bit. Once um, your time with TZU had wrapped up, so did it, did TZU just disbanded, did it? Not really. I mean, we did another, we, we had a few big breaks and we kept coming back and doing sort of, yep. we did um, millions of moments um, and I'd sort of already put out a Jolistic solo record at that point. And, yep. and I, and we did actually with millions of moments, we really wanted to try and ex- explore sort of more psych rock sort of, you know, I guess like a less radio friendly sound and more experimental, but it, it kind of got caught somewhere in between radio and experimental. And, um, I, we, we did that record and because at that point the other three members all had kids at that point and it was just an unsustainable thing to kind yep. of keep playing in this band that had once, you know, generated quite a lot of income and now was not, it was a weird time. I mean, it was like everything. It just, it ran its course, but we yep. never actually said, Hey, like, let's, let's call it a day. Yep. I, well, technically we're still in a yep. band together. Yep. Yeah. Good. So, uh, Jolistics became your focus. Yeah, yeah. yeah was there a time period of sort of or downtime between that, or did you sort of? Uh, yeah, there was actually, and, and go straight into it. No, there was a period. I took, um, I took a year off to travel, and yep. I went and lived. It's a bit longer than a year. I, I lived in China. Uh, in Shanghai first and then in Beijing and then a little bit in Mongolia. And then yep. I traveled over to Europe and I lived in, um, I lived in Paris and in Berlin. And yep. so all up for a period of, there was a sort of a period of like four or five years where for a whole year I was away, but then every winter in Australia, I would go and live over mostly in Berlin, yep. but a bit in Paris as well. Anyway, just, yep. you know, and I'd save money from touring and I'd save money from working or whatever job I had at the time. Yep. And then I'd, go and write music or play and do stuff over overseas and yep. had quite a community of friends and, and peeps over there. And, yep. Um, and so there was a sort of a break, a lull in the TZU records where um, I kind of just went out and into the world and just yep. were like, what, what else is going on other than music? And then yep. came back to Australia and um, in 2010 – and sort of picked up the Jolistics thing and yep. went, okay, cool, let's let's rock this. And yep. I, at this point I was sort of just starting to produce. So really one of my favourite producers is is the other guy who rapped in TZU, Pip Norman. He's yep. a fantastic producer and he's taught me heaps and, you know, I would say he's a bit further down the path in terms of technique and skill yep. um, of, of pr- production. And... Um, so when I got back and started doing the Jolistics thing, I think I did some work with him and I started to learn about, okay, cool, what would be my sound? What would be the thing that I would push yep. towards? And it was probably something that blended hip-hop but also, you know, like um, more indie rock yep. elements to it. And I think the first Jolistics record, Voyager, was my ch- sort of uh, tr- sort of my experiment in trying to like bring some of that um, – guitar and, and synth stuff to hip hop. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I listened to it the other day. I was like, oh, yeah, I got some of that kind of in the right zone. And now I feel like my chops, my actual production chops are way better. And I'm like, yep. oh, cool. Actually, I know what I'm trying to do. And it's often working in these like 
gray areas between genres. I've, yep. I've never been a great genre writer where I'm like, I'm going to write a straight up hip hop record. I've never re- really written a straight up hip hop record. It's yep. always had something else that sort of yep. kind of moves it. And and I think I'm that's one of my production um, calling cards or signatures or whatever is just like to try and bring a few disparate elements together, even performers like that singer and this style or this band and this, you know, like I'm often trying yep. to find the thing that um, goes against the, the, the grain. Yeah. Was Joelistic's like initial stages for you to be an MC or to be sort of a solo artist? It's just to be a solo artist. Yeah. Like I, I always wanted to, rap for half the gig and play weird synths and vocal pedals for half the gig. But I mean, you know, I also was aware that when you go and rock a crowd, they just sort of want to hear hear you rap and, you know, jump around. And and, I I knew that. It's a hard balance beam to sort of cater towards the rap market, but also be a musician at the same time. I do remember around the sort of like, like 2014, 2010 to 2014, also, I mean, hip hop is in a quite a creative place now. Yep. But it, back then, it was there was a real, and especially in Australia, it was a real like conservative, creative idea of what hip hop should be. And I think yep. it's because hip hop's often Australian hip hop has often had to assert its identity outside of the paradigm of American hip hop. It's yep. always going to get compared to it. It's always going to be influenced by it, and it's somewhat derivative of it. And so, because of that, it adopted quite a kind of like keep it real stance, which was like, it's got to be this to be hip hop. Like it's got to have this, 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 and this, and this. And if you're going, no, but I want to, you know, I want to bring in some like lap steel guitar and I'm going to have like, you know, a choir and whatever, whatever crazy eccentric thing you want to bring in. People are like, yeah, but that's not really hip hop then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, I picture it to be quite hard to, um, I don't know, for want of a better term, like find your twang as like a as an Australian hip hop MC or, or vocalist in the in the terms of like uh, I worked with Illy a long time ago and he was um, like showing showing the guys like some of the demos he was getting sent for his like uh, was it one two label or whatever it is he he has mm-hmm. and um, he was just like yeah it's really good but just like the, it's an Australian hip hop artist putting on an American accent and it's mm-hmm. just really confusing. And he's just like, I'm just not really into that. And then I kind of go like, fuck, what do you do? Like, what if you, do, if you don't want to be classified as like an Australian hip hop artist, mm. you know, with that like Australian, Australiana, mm. you know, twang to it. It's kind of a, a hard balance beam. And, you know, you've got like the streets and all that sort of stuff who's like, you know, grime and all that sort mm. of stuff. It's, it's quite a, a specific thing. Is it something you sort of um, had in mind as to, I suppose, I mean, you, you've, you've always had your MC ability mm. and like is, have you ever sort of, I guess, shaped your, your MCing or your style based on your geography? Yeah. I mean, TZU, that was a big philosophy for TZU was yep. we wanted to, we wanted to create a sound that felt distinctly Australian or distinctly so-called, you know, I mean, so-called Australia. Yeah. We wanted to bring something that felt like it related to what we knew, the country we grew up in, the yep. culture we knew, the landscapes that we saw, and we wanted to wrap in our own accents. We yep. wanted to use – but, I mean, I we didn't lean into it so heavy that it became a, 
a kind of extension of the accent or something. Like yep. we didn't kind of over accentuate it. We just, I think we kept it somewhere in this sort of um, ambiguous accent zone, yep. which, you know, was just, we just wrapped the way we talked. Yep. And, um, yeah, but it was a conscious discussion. I mean, we used to, when Pip and I first started rapping in the early days, I think we had American accents just because we listened to American rap. And yeah. so it would filter into our, and we had, I remember there being a really distinct period of having to go, cool, how would you rap this line? Because I keep wanting to rap it like this, but yep. it sounds too American. And so we'd actually, you know, paid attention to yep. trying to like bend it into a different, into a more natural place. And when some recording sessions, we'd be like, well, maybe, you know, and we'd sort of pull each other up and check each other and say like, you know, just check that you're not like leaning too far into the sort of a New York twang on that yeah. line or, you know, a slang, not so much what you wrote, but just more like, don't, you know, let's not try and yeah. sound like that. Let's that, try and sound like this. <laughs> is that something that's quite heavily discussed in like the hip hop course at Box Hill? Um, not, well, not really heavy, heavy, because I don't feel, uh, I, I think the discussion happens, but I don't think you can, I don't want to tell anyone how to find rap. your own voice. You got to find your own voice. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, like we're in an age where one of the planet's biggest rap stars is a young indigenous kid from Sydney or yeah. from out of Western Sydney called the kid Leroy. Yeah. Who I believe raps in an American accent. Yeah. But I think that's not even a discussion anyone's having. They're just yeah. like, whoa, he's like as, you know, he's going, he's doing mega numbers and yeah. he's this amazingly sort of global superstar. Yeah. Um, what was his name? The Kid Leroy. Um, never heard of him. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. And, you know, um, with that thing comes a whole lot of people going, cool, I can do that too. And so the accent debate... Uh, you know, again, when I talk about that period where TZU was coming up, like accents were a, you could get into a fight if you rapped into an, in an American accent. There was a real divide between rappers who rapped in an American accent and rap, rappers who rapped in an Australian accent. And, yep. um, you know, what maybe won the war was that basically radio went, cool, we're going to support the ones who rap in an, you know, Triple J basically went, yeah, we're going to go with the ones who rap yep. in an Australian accent. Yep. And so I can think of heaps of, really good rappers from the early 2000s who some of the best rappers in the country but they rapped in an American accent and they're just you know no yeah. one knows them or yeah they, well I guess you, you put yourself in the ocean of of American accents yeah in rap yeah. whereas you know it's the, yeah, mother, you do. It's the motherland of rap really yeah. yeah you're you're suddenly but also like you know a big thing of for my experience of hip hop a big thing is to represent authentically who you are and where you're from and what your story is yeah and if the first, if you're, if you open your mouth and someone's like, I don't, this could be some kid from Minnesota or from, you know, from yep. New York, then you've almost already thrown people off the track, you know? Yep. So, you know, and I, and I don't, I don't have, I don't have a thing for or against the accent now. I think somewhere along the way I went, oh yeah, the voice is an instrument. You use your instrument in a way you know, I prefer to hear someone who can flow rather yeah. than uh, how they accent it. Like, yep. I just want to know that they write cool shit and they yep. can sit on a beat and it sounds dope. Yeah, like my favourite MC, I'm not sure if you call her an MC, but um, by far is like Sample the Great. Like her yeah. flow, her... Um, her tone. Her tone, her just like, her phrasings are just like... Yeah, as a drummer, it's next level. Like it's, she's, she's, 
She's queen. She's queen <laughs> yeah. jumper. She and, really um, is. I, I, it's to this day one of the best gigs I've ever seen was um, the last Golden Plains, whatever year ago it was. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, it was the first time I'd seen her full production and also with the new album. And um, it was as if all the trees in the super onion, super natural amphitheater were grown for her. Set. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I mean, great. you know, I was, I was in a, in, in my own state, but yeah. uh, man, like the, the production team and all that sort of stuff, like the, the, they used all the lights in the, in like the crowd to yeah. like time coded and perfectly the visuals and stuff were perfect, but it was just like, like a headline Coachella set oh, at Meredith. Fantastic. And it was just yeah. like supreme. Yeah. And I just like, yeah, she's walking, really next level. Walking back to the campsite, <laughs> she just really like is next level. On like, like I'd just mm. seen Christ himself just yeah. walk past me. I was just like, I was, and to this, like, I goosebumps just thinking about that. Set. So, what's really cool is that actually we went and saw Sampa play at the Northcote Social Club for her. Like, I feel it was, she said it was like her second ever gig. Yeah, Sampa the Great. Um, I know she'd come from like a spoken word background and had probably done shows, but like this was a Sampa show. Yeah. She was still playing with Rodriguez, Rodriguez, who was her first producer, and yep. he'd put together this little sort of band. And and I and I just remember like being like, you know, I mean, like shut the door. Like that's that's as good as hip hop that's going to come from this country is ever going to get. Yeah. Like this is, you know, this is like witnessing sort of seeing like Kendrick or someone yeah. where you're like, wow, yeah, we're going to be, you know, the, this is an all-timer. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about accents, I mean, someone who I'm not sure how long she's she based herself in Australia for, but um, to to like live in Australia but still call like Zambia home mm. and just sing, you know, such powerful um, lyrics and all that sort of stuff mm. in reference to home, like, it's um, it's yeah, it's just so powerful that you know someone who defines themselves in Australia um, can you know have such connection with with Africa and all that sort of thing, and and that's really what I love about um, you know the American uh, so the Australian music scene is um, and, you know when I think about Australia Day conversation and all that sort of stuff and changing the date, and I'm mm. just like. I mean, Sampa the Great's the best Australian artist I've ever I could ever, <laughs> could ever think of. Like, and, yeah. and that's that's multiculturalism at its at, at its best. And it's just like Australia is, you know, I don't I don't think Sampa the Great, and I I could be wrong, but this is my prediction that I don't think Sampa the Great would be what we know. It might be a different thing, but if she didn't spend this time in Australia, it would have been a, maybe a different beast. Yeah, for you know, sure. With, with different yeah. inspirations and that sort of stuff. And that that's the melting pot that I love about Australian music so much is that. Um, we're all visitors, um, you know, to, to, to this land and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's, it's that melting pot of multiculturalism that spews out that amazing, unique music, but still has that connection to home, which mm. is Zambia for her. One of the interesting things for, um, that I remember when TZU started to tour a lot um, in the early days was that um, – we realized that uh, predominantly the the more you travel and play like s- small towns and and you know even like Brisbane or Perth like you realize that actually um Australia's really the mainstream band culture is a super white culture and yep. it's a super especially in Melbourne yeah well uh, for me Melbourne is is and and Sydney has at least a large metropolis thing which yep. is there's a lot of scenes going on yeah 
But when you go and play in like Albury or you go and play in, you know, in, um, I don't know, in um, Bunbury, yep. your crowd is predominantly going to be white. And yep. it's predominantly going to be white dudes. White, and white working class. Yeah. Working class, maybe up, who knows? But mm. like generally white dudes and, and yep. they're going to come. And when they come to that show, you know, what we started to see was like that brings its own energy and often people want to see themselves reflected in the artist that they see yep. on stage. So it was no surprise to us that when hip hop, when I first got into hip hop in Australia, it was, I felt like it was super multicultural, it was super gender diverse and there was, it was quite open-minded in, but as it kind of hit the bigger audiences and mainstream, it, it became more do white dudes yep. doing representing it because that's the audience. And, yep. and you know, I'm, I, you know, I have my own feelings and thoughts on, on, on what that does to the music and et cetera, et cetera. But you can't hate on the reality of wh- who's going to gigs and what that looks like. Yep. Like, you know, there was a, it's no surprise that 360 was as big as he was or Illy, you know, they represent yep. the audience they play for in a yep. really clear way. And I think, um, you know, just to bring it back to, to, to our experiences at TZU, we had, you know, there was, I'm half Chinese. Our DJ was, is Pakistani Australian. Like we, we we were a little bit different and we kind of reveled in our difference and we talked about racism in the raps and we like yep. talked we tried to confront this stuff and in some ways we hit a ceiling because of that i think as yep. well like there was a like cool you guys are you're that sort of inner city voice or that sort of you're that yep left wing when you say <laughs> ceiling the, do you mean like limited i think so and yep. I, I would i would i would say um that Sampa has a has a certain limit within Australia because she's black. Yeah. She's you know she's representing a culture that most Austra- most of Australia still wrestles with the idea that 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 anyone could relate to that in you know you know yeah. it, it, it's 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 basic xenophobia and prejudice and racism. But it's yeah. it's it's also just like you know I mean you just need to turn on the Bachelor or whatever commercial TV yeah. station and you can see what Australia sees itself as. And I think that, um, that travels down into yeah. the music industry. Um, it's, it's, I mean, cause you referenced earlier that like ice cube and, and those sort of artists that what they were singing about was, you know, influential to you. It's, it fascinates me that you saw that when you breached those topics, you found it limiting. I think it's, it's not that I found the topics limiting. It's that I found the audience audiences yeah. appreciation of um, what their artists and stars and yeah. representatives can be limiting. So, yeah. I, and I still do think that. I think it's, I think so-called Australia has a real problem with people who are not, you know, Anglo and and of a particular kind of even a particular sort of style. Like I think. Um, you know, you, the Chinese might have been here since the 1850s and you might have, you know, indigenous culture is rich, thriving and just as healthy in some areas as it's ever been. But I don't think mainstream Australia can deal with that stuff. I don't think yeah. it can really embrace it in the same way that it can get behind, you know, whatever, whoever, Dave Hughes or whatever. Yep. You know, it's just a... Uh, I mean, it can, it happens, of course. Yep. And then we're, and it's happening more and more every day, but I still think that there's a really limited, um, scope for that, some of that stuff. And 
a lot of that is about is about, is is this sort of myth building of what what we who we are and all that stuff, what stories we have to tell and whatnot. But the immigrant story is not it's not sort of held up in the same to the same no, degree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is crazy to me because we're all a we're all like you say we're all immigrants we're all settlers here yep. and we're all um, you know like you know this this concept of like Australia sees itself as the underdog actually the immigrants and Indigenous people and people from minority voices you know from diverse sort of sexual orientations or identities are that's the underdogs and that's yeah. the real true spirit of the Anzacs or whatever yeah, you know, yeah. it's like. It's such an irony. There's such an irony to it. Anyway, I mean, like we talked, we tried to broach this stuff. I've always tried to speak to this in in music because I think it's just one way of me being able to let it out. Like I, yep. whether it's overtly political or coming from a personal place, I've always thought that 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 it's valid to tell that story to 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 shake those power structures and yep. to say, what the fuck? Like, yep, that's been a big part of it. Yep, perfect. Um. Your time traveling, um, did you, from listening to um, the new record, Film School, mm. um, did you have sampling ability in those travels? I did. Yeah. So were you sampling a lot of sounds from this new record on that, on that travel? Yeah. Like so, China and Mongolia? Was well, it? not through that. Not through that. that, that mostly what happened for film school was that I, I went to Malaysia. I was born in KL. And so my mum's like, oh, let's go back to the house where you were born. I want to show it to you. And so we went uh, on a trip in 2018 yep. um, uh, to KL. And while we were there, we went and saw the house, which had been, I think, just demolished, but then rebuilt into a sort of different facade which is where I was born yep. um, but while we, we stayed in KL for quite a while and I went and I found this record store um, this is like this dodgy little CD shop in um, the Chinatown markets and I found all these old sort of 70s canto pop and Taiwanese pop records yep. um, bought a stack of them and I had um, an MPC live which has the ability to sample so I was loading a lot of the CD stuff that I had up onto my computer and sampling and writing beats and actually a lot of those beats ended up as tracks on the film school records yep. so weirdly it was like the the trip had all this family history reasons that sort of underpin why I went to Malaysia and then getting that music and then getting it and knowing that it was sort of made sort of it was what was sort of being played around the time I was born. All that stuff just sort of resonated and I was like, oh, yeah, cool. This is this is yep. good. Even if I pitch it right down or have it really low in the mix or I just bend the samples as much as possible, it's it's somehow the, it's borrowing from the past and it's yep. like echoing something that I really, really yep. vibe with. And, and, and I like that with tracks. Like I like the idea of having little sonic um, like little – Easter eggs for me that are emotional or nostalgic, but they might yep. not, that might not be apparent or overt. Yeah. I mean, upon first listen of the album, um, my initial thoughts is um, how much I miss traveling. Oh, yeah. and, it, and it's um, those like clearly like soundscape style sampling rather than, um, you know, like, typical sample culture of finding a, a pre-existing uh, record of that sort of is, was there a lot of soundscape sort of influence to um, yeah that sort of stuff opposed to yeah. you know, finding that four bar beat 
break, yeah, repeat sort of style of sampling. It's it's funny because it's still the stuff on film school has still got a lot of loop, uh, yep. like loops, but the loops are either shorter or weirder, like weird yep. loping loops. Um, because I finished a lot of the record last year and I th- had that experience that like, I think a lot of people did, which was like life became a loop. It was just like yep. it had this repetitive Groundhog Day quality to it during lockdown. And so that made its way into the music. And I was like, yep. oh, cool. Actually, I can see why this structurally this is mir- mirrors this and it feels right. Um, but yes, to answer your question, all the soundscape and ambient influences – is actually kind of closer to my music tastes now than, um, than maybe all of the, a lot of the previous Jolistic stuff. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I rock at home. And I like, um, I really like can and kraut rock. You know, I, yep. I went through this phase of just like buy a lot of weird German kraut music, you yeah, know, right. like, sort of like driving music, like you say, traveling music, you yep. know, it's just like, hits this hypnotic groove or zone and then it sort of just like trips out and yep. blurs out at the edges. And um, and I brought, you know, I brought a lot of that influence into the film school yep. stuff. But it's also, you know, one, I do remember at one point when I was writing the record, I was like, oh, cool, this could be the kind of record that if you were backpacking through Asia, like through Thailand, this would might be a great soundtrack for that. So yeah, hundred percent. It's that sort um, of like there's this, you know, there's a groove, but it's, it's also like you can. It's got let those tastes of um, of yeah, exactly like backpacking. It's sipping mojitos by the pool bar. <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's visiting a temple and yeah, having a self reflection. It's 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 got a it's got a bit of everything. Yeah, great. I wanted to um, my pick of of. The, of the album so far, I haven't um, dove in as deep into it as I like because this was a fresh link you sent me. Mm. Um, but the opening track, um, I am a, I'm into it. Yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, just the, just the textures and just the, the backbeat. Mm. But like, there's a lot of like. Oh, you're a drummer. You would, I mean, this feel is that yeah. it's a three, four thing where it sits just somewhere between four and three, yep. which feels good. But, um, you know, just going forward to like the, the last chorus, mm. like those little sprinkles of arpeggiators and stuff, mm. that stuff just. So this one. Key to my heart. This um, track is definitely from. Um, has got samples from that trip to Malaysia. All the, the vocal samples. Yeah. Um, and I was, uh, you know, you, there's some loops, there's some samples you take, you can just like, once you've got it sitting right, you can just listen to it for hours. And, and I really vibed out on this one hard. The other thing I did is I'm a massive synthesizer nerd. I yep. fucking love analog synths. And yep. the a lot of this record was like building a beat and then just layering synths yep. and synths and synths like um, modular synths or like in no, particular that's that's a bridge too far. Yeah, no. is there a particular synth in this record that is uh, featured? Yes, the CS50. Yeah, the Beast. Yeah, the first synth that I ever bought. This yeah. is Old Faithful. Oh, dude, I I got it for four hundred dollars at a secondhand music store in in Melbourne around the TZU days, and I didn't know it's taken me so that would have been in 2002 yep 
I've had this synth close to 20 years. It was, yep. it was made the year in 76, so a year before I was born. It is a lifetime synth. Like it's yep. one of those synths that you can, I, every time I sit down and I can go, wow, I just got a sound I've never got out of yep. this synth. Just before. an inspirational. It's, <laughs> it is. The, it's the one. It's yep. the one. It's the gold. It's one of the golden, you know, the golden few. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think um, the CS50 and its bigger brother, the CS80, is. Yep. It's what uh, Vangelis wrote the Blade Runner soundtrack on. It's what Stevie Wonder was all over. Who the, makes it? It's a Yamaha synth. The CS50. So I've got, there's a CS50, there's a 60, and there's an 80. The 80's like mm, massive. It's yeah, like it a, looks sick. But the 50 is the, is the one I've got. Yeah. yeah. So that would be the, that's the the key signature synth for this record. Yeah. Um, uh, and probably the MPC Live is a key piece of gear that, that made it on. But look, this record is about, was also deeply about collaboration. So yep. there's, um, there's a lot of people on this record. There's yeah. a lot of players and a lot of... Was, um, what was the thought process on stepping back from the microphone and basically... Writing an putting, instrumental record? Writing your display home for producing, really. Yeah, kind of. I mean, my, even the stuff that I produce, like the stuff that I would do with Haiku Hands or Moju or, um, you know, other artists is not even like... It's not as out as this. Yep. It's much more in a... Um, more, I don't know, like song, songy and, yep. and pop even. But with this stuff, it's more like, you know, I think every producer who works with electronic stuff has hours and hours of music that is just their sort of experimentation and yep. their tweaks and they're sort of like, I'm going to try this and I want to see what, you know. Yep, just like a texture library. Texture library. Yep. And and this is my texture library record. This is, yep. And I know that it's like, it's... Uh, somewhat indulgent but it, it, it was a good last year what the hell if you're going to do something you know you've got yeah. all that time in your hands like finish the, the ambient indulgent record and yep. I was like I'm going to dive headlong into it like and I also had like friends like Mindy Meng Wang who plays um, Gu Zheng Chinese harp yeah awesome and she's playing on a, a number of these tracks and, and another yep. friend named Fran- Francesca Mountford who plays cello and yep. uh, Parvin Singh sings on on two tracks and uh, you know I, I a, a lot of it's from material that was done that was made or started pre-lockdown between 2018 and 2020 and then it sort of morphed into last year, me just getting all this material and going, yep. cool, I'm going to take all these elements and try and weave something yep. cohesive together. Um, Is this the most that Joelistics has collaborated? No, not really, because the last five years, that's all I've done. Like, yep. the last, for the last five years, I've worked with other artists to try and help them realize their vision. Yep. Um, except for like... I did a, a, a record it, with the Jolistics banner, though. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, with the Jolistics yeah. banner, I did a, a record with Mo, Mojo Juju, yeah. who became Moju. Um, I did a record, a whole album with her. But yeah, this is the most diverse and sort of eclectic collaborations. Yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it is actually. Yeah. yeah. What would be? What's your favorite track? Um, probably the last one, "Lucid Dreams," which um, has my friend Matt Rob playing guitar. Um, there's no beat it's just he, I, you know I wrote this chord progression on the CS50 um, and the bar links are all I think it's like 6 3 5 in terms of the amount of times you're sitting on chords and I, I just again it was something I just loved playing and I yep. loved showing it to other musicians and then getting that 
sort of hypnotic quality from something that's just a bit bent to the left and yeah um, Fran plays cello on this one and it's beautiful yeah. and, and then it sort of builds at the end there's this sort of synth kind of orchestra but a lot of um, like kind of cross modding distorted synth stuff yeah and for me it's it's you know I've always had this real love of like um, Montreal post rock stuff like Godspeed You Black Emperor and, yep. and, and this for me is that it heads into that territory so yep. yeah I, lo- I love this this track yeah it's so nice um, it's a new luxury with all this brand new gear that I've got to be able to listen to music and talk it's, it's like yeah. a, it's um, it's quite hypnotic especially yeah. with a song uh, such as Lucid Dreams yeah yeah yeah, this is yeah, this is this is my fa- current favorite. There's all this and also full with um yep. Hayley Kramer. Yep. That's probably you know, if I had to play someone the two songs that kind of represent the record, I think those two would yep. be good contenders. Um Fools, yeah, it sort of um sits somewhere closer to what I would do for other artists or Joel yep. Sticks and yet it sort of sits nicely on this yep. record as well. Who's um, who's on your hit list to collaborate with in the future? Uh, that's a good question. Um, who would I love to collaborate with in Australia? Um, Considering, well, like go the hypothetical that sky's the limit. Well, if the sky was the limit and it was like open to all... I, I tell you one thing that has come up, which I hope comes off, is I, I got in touch... I. I Someone got in touch with me from a gamelan orchestra um, wow. in, based in Dandenong and yeah. said, would you like to be an artist in residence for um, our orchestra? It's a 30-piece orchestra. Wow. We play traditional gamelan, but we also do con- con- some contemporary pieces. Yeah. And an artist in residence can write music and yeah. work with the orchestra. And so gamelan is like a sort of like an Eastern orchestra. It's like an Indonesian um, bell orchestra. So wow. it's... Um, Often it's arpeggiating patterns yeah. uh, in rounds, but the rounds sort of time-wise can move across quite a lot of different time signatures. Yeah. So someone could be playing in five and someone could be playing in three and someone can... Maths. It's, yeah, it's really dense. But, yeah. it's, but when you hear it, it's actually really beautiful. It's actually a lot like synth music. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and I, I the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is kind of my dream collaboration right now. Yeah. It's like, A, it means... Because I talk like I know what I'm talking about with Gamelan I really am just I don't know much I know yeah. a little bit and I know that it's a, a deep discipline which I would love yeah. to understand more um, so for me that concept of like oh cool you can learn this whole kind of new school and and even in tuning the way it's, things are tuned is, yeah. is, is micro-tuned and so yeah that's a great one in terms of like you know my all-time artist that I'd love I, I would love to have have or would love to work with um, Yasin Bey, most deaf, yep. as a as a if it came to like the the rapper or probably Doom maybe was at the top of the list. Yeah, you know Yasin Bey is it's maybe second. Um, in terms of singers, um, you know, there's so many singers that I I would be like, there's uh, in, it, I can only really think locally at the moment because everything has to be thought locally. Gareth Lydiard is yep. like one of my all-time faves um you know um there's a singer named jaguar jones i quite like what she does at yep. the moment um you know she's, uh, like a 
also a guitarist, isn't she? I think she's just, I've only seen her sing. Maybe right, she plays okay. guitar as well. I'm yeah. sure, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really, ha- it's funny you should ask, I don't really have a kind of wish list in a yeah. way. I sort of, I'm struggling to think of artists that I'd be like, ooh, that'd yeah. be great. But it's more. Um, Would you sort of, like it's, is it quite open-ended to the fact that um, it could be anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Which is uh, an exciting but also um, like powerful inspiration. The other thing is for after doing this record and also having a lot of time to kind of do my own thing last year, I was like, actually, I, I think I caught the bug to release more music, solo music. Yep. And I think it's also having Lua, like having a daughter and kind of thinking about life and, you know, what she might listen to of my music. I suddenly feel like I've got a lot more to say and yeah, a wow. big kind of lull of being a vocalist or being a rapper was me kind of going, I think I've, for the time being, I've said a lot of what I wanted to say yep. and now I can kind of feel myself going, oh no, actually I've got a bit more to say, you know, yep. I want to write some more songs and I yep. want to write some more vocal songs. So yep. um, definitely uh, I think that's where my head's at now is rather than like, hey, I'd love to work with this person. It's more, actually I'm, I'm, want to just write some songs yep. for myself for my daughter yeah having um, freshly you know had your first born are you sort of I think you just answered it but like are you re picturing what you put back into the world through your music yeah, yeah. 100% yeah I, d- I definitely feel um, I can't help but think what will 16 year old Lua think of this yeah a little bit just like you know I mean I'm sure it'll be totally uncool yeah it'll be like dad that is just whack yeah but get out of my room yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah get, get out of my room I want to play video games yeah you know, like whatever but I think it's it's also like having Lua I really can't stress enough how much like my time my relationship with time has shifted yeah and I have got less of it and the time that I do have, I want to do stuff that I really want to do. Yeah. I want to be really present. I want to be really make it essential because yep. you don't have, uh, you know, I'm, it's gone to the days where it's like, oh yeah, three days can go by and I don't care if I don't do it, you know, yep. whatever, nothing happens. Now I'm like, hey, cool. I got two hours to be in the studio. Let's use that really well. Yeah. Um, let's make something great. Yep. Cool. Sorry, I'm going to just turn this off. I imagine um, hearing your own stuff while you're trying to talk is, is quite distracting. Um, um, how do you? Um, where, where's where's your ideal performance space for this record? Um, maybe the ideal performance space. So the show that we're putting together for um, this record is is an eight piece band. Yep. And nothing played to sequences. Yep. And um, three dancers and projections like video, yep. film, looping, VJing. Yep. Um, and so the maybe the ideal, if I could play anywhere, it would be like the Astor Theatre or something. Yep. And be able to have the visuals be really quite epic. Yep. And Astor's in St Kilda. The Astor's in the old one in St. Yeah, on the- but also like the, yeah. I mean, any of those old theatres like yep. the Westgarth, the Astor, the, yep. um, where else would, would, would totally be 
yeah, my alley. Um, even like the Thornbury Picture House. Yeah. Like just a, a great cinema with a good sound system. Yep. That had the ability to maximize the visuals and then, but also have dancing and, and, and yep. the live band thing. Uh, and, you know, like the funny thing is that um, now rehearsing with the band, and it's a great band, um, I've gone, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, I'd love the net. If I did a film school part two, I would do a lot more live uh, yep. recording, acoustic recording. So it's sort yep. of weirdly the putting together li- the live show has opened up this whole kind of much more bandy kraut vibe yep. than is actually in the record. Yeah. And I imagine um, performing it in front of people for the first time will um, like inspire its evolution mm. Um, mm. to that to that next step. Mm. I um, think so. I've been listening pretty heavily to this. Um, uh, I think I mean you would still call him like a country bluegrass guy, which is really not up my style. But a guy called Sturgill Simpson, mm-hmm. um, he yeah was straight up bluegrass country, but then he just sort of went fuck it. I'm going to do this like prog rock industrial album, and it is like. Cool. I recommend anyone to check this album out. Um, it is like, it's a movie. Yeah. Um, Great. So it's, it's made mm. to be consumed as an album, not in, not in, not on random, not on, it's, it'll, they all tie into each other, mm-hmm. but he's also released it um, with a anime on Netflix. Oh, so you can actually watch it from like minute, like it's a 47 minute um, album. Yeah. But um, yeah, I highly recommend checking it out. Sturgill Simpson. Um it's uh, very sample-based, like um, industrial, um, almost like Black Keys meets like Nine Inch Nails. Awesome. It's really, really yeah, cool I stuff. Yeah, I love it. But then his other stuff, how did this happen? Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, really yeah. weird. So if you chuck on like Sturgill Simpson Radio on on, um, on Spotify, it's yeah. super confusing. I think I gather that Joelistics Radio is probably quite confusing these days as well. Yeah. There's a lot of other voices on, you know, with this record there was, there's Parvin and there's um, Hayley Kramer. H is her artist name. Um, and I, I guess the, um, a lot of people who listen to TZU or Joelistics know me as a rapper. They, I don't yep. even think many people would even know or even care about yep. the production or who produced it. It's like, oh yeah, that's the rap dude. Yeah. And so... You know, this is definitely throwing a bit of a spanner in the works. Yeah. Is it quite unique or rare to have MCs being the main song writer? Mm. I mean, not necessarily in like a, in a solo scenario, but I mean, having basically, you know, is something like a Hilltop Hoods or a, um, let's go with Hilltop Hoods, like the two MCs, I imagine, aren't the ones... Recording, actually no, no, no. I, I think Safa produced the majority of the early stuff. Yeah. I don't know if he does anymore, but he's a great producer. Yeah, um, he's got he's got a really great sound and really good feel. Um, yeah, I think in a in locally, I think you would find a lot of MCs who are right. also producers. Actually, good. yeah, right. yeah. I think it's a real. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of MC MCs, but yeah, then yeah. there's a lot of. You know, because the industry is just smaller and everyone's got to do more jobs. And so, you know, that's something that people... Is a lot of the um, students doing like the hip hop course, are they predominantly MCs or are they into 
the full production. Actually, they're predominantly stuff. MCs, but yep. there's a lot of them that are like, I want to get into production, and you know, yep. they're they're kind of getting their chops on as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the th- the thing about pr- production is like, it takes a long time to find your feet and your yep. sound. Well, actually, I, I lie in a way. Now these days, you can loop up a couple of splice loops and boom, you're away. Yeah. But if you really want to go deep, it's like it's a yep. you know it's a science and a, and you've got to learn a lot of a lot of stuff. Yep. Um, when you're either on the road or at home, mm. um, how do you look after yourself? Um, when I, I haven't been on the road for ages, when I'm on the road, I run. Yep. Um, jog in the morning. At the moment, my mental health is is a lot to do with so. Um, I do the morning shift with Lua, so yep. I'm up at 6 a.m. and then walk her for maybe an hour around the parks of Brunswick and then yep. go home. And so that uh, that first hour of the morning is, is gold. I love it. Yep. I have a coffee, go for a walk. Yep. Pushing my daughter through the streets. It's awesome. Um, yep. But in terms of like, you know, how to kind of maintain um, my mental health on the, on the road, I do remember like, needing to kind of take time to chill. Like yep. I think gone are the days where I was like, yeah, 24-7, I'm on the road, I'm accessible with people all around, around yep. me all the time. I need to have a po- point where I'm like, I've got to check out and go and yep. have some you know, chill time. Um, yeah, that's one of the ways that I used to definitely sort of maintain that lifestyle. Also just not take everything that is offered to you. Yeah, don't you don't need to follow every sing, sing, single invitation. You don't need to be happy all the time. Don't need to be happy all the time because <laughs> sometimes yeah. when you're not happy, you're still pretty happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a real. It's a. It's you know. And when if you're always when that you, happy, sometimes you're not that yeah. happy. <laughs> when you first start, and you know, people are like you know, and everything's coming, and people, you know, and it's, it's all happening. Yeah, it's great, but there's a point where it's like, wow, this is relentless. Like, yeah, and I think it's a real, it's a really nice thing to get to a point where you're like. I like saying no. I yeah. like saying no to things. Like that's. I like saying no to projects. I like saying no to this. Yeah. I like saying no to what you're offering. This, this, you know. Yeah, it's definitely um, the art of saying no is something I um, I wish to exercise. Mm. Um, not that I would have said no to a lot of things in the past, but it's just I don't know. I feel like if you say no, you've got yourself in mind rather mm-hmm. than you like. You can think of a bigger picture when you say no, and whereas if you're just the guy who's always like yes, yes, yes. That's what turns your passion into like a mindless job. Yeah, I feel, I feel so. Like, it's also where you start to let people down, and I don't yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like, like if you're and you burn yourself out. If you overpromise and under and and sorry, if you if you say you can do shit and you actually don't have the time, you're doing a disservice not to just to you but to them in yep. the future. And you and once you realize it's like cool, I let me like under promise and over deliver that's a yep. way better situation so let me take more off my plate do less but do it really well that's yeah, a really good thing that's yeah i wish i did that for a lot of <laughs> a lot of things i've done yeah in the last couple of years like yeah i pre um pre covid I, I burnt myself out um by yeah just not only promising but just trying to give the world to yeah. um to a lot of the um artists and stuff i was working with and it's it was just unsustainable and um you know it inspired me to start a podcast that touches on mental health and that sort of stuff but um 
Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's that balance beam of um, of understanding what can be delivered and mm-hmm. making those impossible scenarios impressive. Oh, the other the other um, element from being a producer that I really am aware of is like when I first started out playing music and especially as an artist, um, I could go and do epic sessions that would start at, what I don't know, 12 p.m. and then finish at 4 a.m. And I could do four of them in a row and I'd be fine. I'd yep. love it. I'd thrive off it. But um, now if I'm in the studio and it gets to like 6 or 6.30 or 7, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm done. Like I'm going to go home now. Yep. And that drawing that boundary and saying this is where my day – you know, this we don't have unlimited time with each other. Yep. And I don't have time like time to just hang out. I want to do yep. work, or I want to go and hang out with my family. Yep. They're the two things that I'm about. At and the it's moment. like supreme, like brain allocation to be um, creative has like a time limit. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, uh, a friend Tyson, shout out to Tyson, uh, who runs the Alamo Studios. He's had um, bands that come in, and you know, there's a day rate. Yeah. But it's an unspecific day rate. If yeah. you come in at eight in the morning and want to go to three in the morning, like if it's all productive, it's it's good stuff. But like the you know, I imagine um when producing other bands and that sort of stuff, having those bands that are, are crunching the numbers and trying to get as most out of your time as that is available yeah. would be um kind of counterproductive to the creativity that could um, you know, develop in a productive environment yeah I think also it's like you, you I've got dependables now like I've got people who I, I need to go and be present for and I want to be yep. present when I'm with them and that requires me to have a cutoff point and if you set your cutoff point then it's really clear and it doesn't yep. matter even if you're like you know if someone thinks they're on a vibe and oh my god i you know i'm sorry but we worked out this earlier on this is the point where i have to go and yep. do this now and that's the artist saying no shit yeah same, same stuff yeah 100 and, and, and it will make me a better producer slash person if i can yep. do that and um i i definitely feel like you know it's a real sort of new artist's uh, mindset to just go yeah i just go for you know for 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 hours and days on end and fuck the world and whatever yep. it doesn't matter and I don't need to eat and all that stuff like yep. um, I, I remember that state and it's kind of cool but it's not sustainable yep. once you get to a certain point when yep. you, when this is your job and this is what you do you can't really continue to give like that yeah like I'm work, I've been working with a couple of artists and like album number two idea is to like go and get a house in somewhere remote and you know just party but have a really productive time and mm. I look at it and go, yeah, that would be so much fun. But then I go like, uh, would it be good for the music? Mm. Uh, and it stresses me out. <laughs> mm. uh, it you depends know, on what the kind of, of the music is and, and the people and like, and you know, if that's the, if that's the way that people tap into their thing, then that's the way they tap into their thing. But yeah. I do think that a lot of people think that's the way they tap into their thing yeah. and it's actually not. Yeah, it's like well, they're just trying we, to avoid the work. How about a bit. we go and get a house, party, and then come back and record? Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> I mean, go on that if, holiday if, if it was me, I would be just like, let's get the house and go and record, but let's not party. Like, let's just have a good time yeah. and keep it nice and keep it chill. But 
like once you say let's party, you're I feel like you're going. Well, we're not doing work then. Yeah, like we're you partying. Just, you just want the opportunity to get away with your mates. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and go yeah. and get away with your mates. But you know, when, when it comes to like, um, you know, music is required, especially for producers. Anyway, it's fucking work, man. Like you got to yep. do a lot of like you got to do a fair bit of stuff. Yeah, and um, if you're just rocking up and you know plugging in and playing and whatnot that can be awesome but that also has its own work which is like you got to have written stuff and you got to prepare and you got to be practice your instrument and all yeah. that stuff but you know production's actually like i got to sit here and edit your shit i don't want to record 40 takes of you doing the same thing i yeah. want you to do the thing really well and i want to use that and yeah. capture magic you know i think yeah. that's the other thing about new, new gear and computers is we can get 40 takes <laughs> i can get yeah. five gigs of someone doing one song if i you know if i want but it's rarely is it going to be essential yep it's just someone throwing stuff at a wall yep. it's just someone going oh what's gonna stick and it's yep. that's not songwriting that's just you know yep yeah um do you consider yourself a spiritual guy mm, yeah yep what yep. is spirituality to you um, I would say it's a healthy conception of mine and everyone who I've mine and everyone's death. Yep. It's the idea that this is a finite adventure and that there is a degree of responsibility that you need to have when you, um, when you, when you live life and you know, how to, um, be generous and give back to life. Yep. Um, I believe in a kind of, I, I believe in an energy that is, that is built to sustain things. Yep. And I believe that that energy is, you know, um, something that you can choose to give yourself and your time to. Yep. Or you can work counter to that. You know, it's, it's sort of a Taoist philosophy. It's yep. like there is a flow and that flow and that natural flow of moving things forward or, or in a natural space is, is very, um, you know, when you're there and you, and you know when you're kind of going against it. And I guess I'm trying to go with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm very inarticulate when it comes to my spirituality. Yep. But I do feel the vibe. Yep. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's your spirituality. It's, you it's, know, it's, that's my thing. Yeah. Me, spirituality isn't, well, it's never religion. Um, yeah. And that's where it can be misconstrued, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I was, I've got more time for religion now than I probably ever have, only because I've got friend, some friend, new friends who are kind of a bit more religious. And, and, you know, I think what happens is that people get a sense of community and belonging and a, you know, kind of a pat on the back and everything's going to be okay kind of yep. feeling from religion. And, and, I, and that is a valid um, thing I get, which I get from music or I get from yep. a lot of other things. So I... I, I I used to really it was like you know that's a real that's a real mental um, trickery to sort of believe in this stuff of you know God or a heaven or hell or these things seemed like forms of slavery in my mind. Yeah. But 
I don't have that same re- reaction anymore. I feel more like that's what you, you know. Yeah. That's what gets you through the night. That's what gets you through the night. Yep. But my own and definitely, you know, having Lua is also bringing this forward. It, it, my spirituality seems to become more and more practical every day, like more and more like a farmer or a gardener rather than, you yep. know, a magician. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Um, last question before uh, our final segment. Um, if you were to create a foundation on um, what's important to you to give back to the world, what would it be? If I was cr- to create a foundation like a yeah. okay, like a charity or something? Yeah, charity. To like give back to the world? Like whatever. Whatever you would feel important that would uh, make the world a better place. Uh, um, I would... If I was going to start a foundation, I would look at locally how we could bring people from a background of privilege to a closer understanding of the natural law or law of the indigenous culture of where they either live or of Australia in general. I've always thought that there would be a great, there's a great opportunity to um, take people out of their comfort zones Mm -hmm. and introduce them to different ways and modes of thinking and living. And I think that we live in a country that has like one of the the oldest culture in, in it and Again, Australia, you know, so-called Australia's ability to kind of not engage with Aboriginal culture is mind-blowing to me when there's so much to learn and there's so much to yeah. kind of ask of advice, like how do we look after this place? Yeah. How do we know this place the way that your culture has known this place? Because yeah. right now, you know, we're getting it quite wrong. So yeah, I mean, maybe my foundation would be about trying to make that happen more. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I mean, even like if you reflect on um, not even just like like socioeconomics of indigenous culture versus uh, the so-called Australia, but you could even reflect on like bushfires. Mm. Like, yeah, they didn't burn down. Yeah, yeah, land management. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Like, and 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 that's community management. We easily like, be educated on from totally. practices that have been in practice for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, and hundred <laughs> percent. Like, I just I feel like every year we have those bushfires, and it's just like I feel like there's I feel like there's a an answer to how to make this work. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I mean, and I think it, and it's I think proven. it's just no one's listening. You're right. I think that there is, but I, I I also think that the way that the Western world has has adopted sort of um, like excessive growth capitalism, like just this unending desire to to to, to yeah. keep growing and growing. You know, everything's got to grow and get bigger, and, and, yeah. and it is unsustainable. It is cruel. It is. You know, it's it's there will be the death of us, yeah. And and I feel like the draining the Murray Darling for you know corporate greed and wondering why the farmers can't get a break. And it's just like, what are you? If you're draining the Murray Darling, but it's still a drought, like where's yeah? Where's why? your long term? Where's the where's the long term thinking on yeah. this? And where's the where's the sort of uh, you know the the kind of 
ability to caretake uh, land is not ours. We don't own land. It's not something I can yep. drain and drain and take all the resources from. It's like something that at best I can, you know, subsist with or, or learn to kind of yep. work with. And I think that, yeah, I just think that we were getting it really wrong at the moment. Yep. So, but you know, what do I know? I live in Brunswick in the inner city. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to understand the very small locale that I'm in and, and yep. know where I am, where I am and what the context is. You know, yep. I, I talk about hopefully bringing up my daughter with the context of knowing wh- whose land and or what this, the history of this place is and yeah. where, what its spiritual qualities are. Like, yep. what does it mean? And, you know, those things, she's so fascinating. When, when we uh, go out in the morning, sometimes we'll sit out in the backyard and when she hears a bird, she's just like this. And, and, and it's, it's magical. Like it's, yeah. it's truly wondrous watching her wonder at it. And, yeah. Part of it is like, you know, there is, you know, I don't want to just see the world in, in economic terms or in categories and this and this. It's There's something beautifully connected about all these things. Yeah. And that's what I think we as a culture, and I mean collectively in the in almost the planet right now, is is moving away from that concept of that connection of all things and the interrelationships, you know, this yep. meta understanding of how things relate and into more and more compartmentalized ways of making money or, you know. Yeah. So if I had a foundation, it was like, it would probably be taking people out into the desert, dropping yep. acid and going, look at the stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd, I'd sign up. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, all right. So the last uh, question we do, um, sort, of, sort of changing around um, with the – the new episodes, but mm. um, put together five artists. Uh, I guess we could do Joelistics Music Festival. Yeah. Five artists, past or present, uh-huh. that would join you on the ultimate gig bill. Oh, God. That's and all of a good this one. goes into a Spotify playlist for all the guests and is just the most eclectic, magical playlist. Wow. Ever. Oh, man. I love it. Um, okay. So. Since we've been talking about production, I'll choose some producers. Or, or, um, probably King Tubby would be on there. Um, I would say Nina Simone is, yep. is on there. Um, she's on the she, she's on the gig. Yeah. Um, I would say um, who else would I say is on there? Um, Al Green is singing. Yep. Um, Maybe it's great. It's like breaking up. <laughs> like, I've, had, I've I've interviewed a lot of metal. Uh, well, just like people who are just like, yeah, fucking, you like metal stuff, so I'll say metal stuff. I'm like, oh, you're just kidding. <laughs> this is sick. You're adding some um, adding some fucking culture to the <laughs> yeah, playlist is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man, let's go even deeper. Like, uh, I'd put Sun Ra. Sun Ra is playing. Yeah, he's just he's just come in and he's like. I love his that he's going to enter into the playlist amongst all the metal metal yeah. artists as well, Sunra and the orchestra. Yeah, um, and maybe um, Paul Simon. Sick. Yeah, <laughs> who I am. You know, I am a tragic Paul Simon fan. Yeah. I fucking love Paul Simon. Because what do we got? We got just going through the playlist so far. We got like stuff from the Cure, the Soundgarden. Oh yeah, John Butler Trio. Uh, Silverchair. 
Dom Dollar, Ohio players, all sorts of stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. Love it. Weird as fuck. All right, Joel. Love it. That'll do us, mate. Great, Thanks man. so much. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Sweet as. How good. If I could get everyone to please go visit the new website I've just built. Pretty cool. Um, it's not um, fun making websites for the first time, but um, I think it's all coming together. There you can go and check out um, some of the services that my normal is now offering. Um, as you would have heard in the advertisements, you can have your own podcast and you can be a cool person just like me with a little bit of help from my normal. You can be very, very cool. Very cool. I promise you'll be cool. Podcasts are really cool. So please visit www.mynormalpodcasts.com for all your podcast needs. Um, cool, so I've mentioned how cool you're going to be if you do that. Um, like and subscribe, all that stuff. Let's get this thing fucking jumping, yeah? Let's do it. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off because this young man's getting married. Um, it's been a fuck around. Cheers, COVID. Um, but, uh, yeah, as I post this in a couple of weeks, having a ceremony, and then I'm going to go sail the Wit Sundays with my honey mama. So uh, when I get back in uh, August... I hope to be really just kicking goals with this. It's um, going to be some fun times. Got some great guests locked in already. And uh, I look forward to sharing this journey with you. Thank you so much for listening um, so far. Um, And if you have not turned this podcast off yet, you are my favorite listener. Not everyone else, you. Have a bloody beautiful day. I love you, maybe. I don't know. I'm going to stop talking. Um, Be a good person. See you soon.